Shalom and welcome to the One Pusik Podcast, where each week your favorite rabbis at Congregation Avas Torah take turns sharing an insight on one Pusik from the Parsha and reflecting or riffing on each other's ideas. Rabbinic banter, I like to call it. As usual, I'm joined by my dear friends and colleagues, really teammates, Rabbi Daniel Goldberg and Rabbi Morty Kasus. For this week's Parsha, Parsha's Tetzave, the one Pusik is from chapter 28, verse 30. Translated in the Steinsalz Chumash as you shall place the Urim and the Tumim in the pouch between the folds of the breastpiece of judgment. And they shall be upon Aaron's heart upon his entry before the Lord. And Aaron shall constantly bear the judgment meaning the ways and practices of the children of Israel on his heart, inside the breastpiece, before the Lord. Okay, who's going first this week? I feel like I went first last time, so maybe we'll, we'll toss it up to one or two of you. I know you like to do the cleanup act in the uh, as a good student of Rabbi Golden. Rabbi Golden told me never, ever speak first or second. Always speak last. In what context was that shared with you? Was that a funeral is that? Oh yeah, does that not apply? That was, that was actually a funeral. Does, is that, is that, like, differ, is that yeah. different than a podcast? Actually, there's a machlokas amongst rabbis about whether a, a rabbi should speak first at a funeral or speak last. Yeah, it really comes down to preference. I, I had a whole discussion about this with a with another rabbi Goldberg. Mm. And what was his shita? It was Rabbi Zev Goldberg, your your brother, who Ooh. was uh, discussing it shame your father-in-law, Rabbi Muskin, who has a very, very strong preference yeah. uh, for the rabbi to speak first at funerals. Yeah. But the other argument in favor of speaking last, which is really my preference and what I do most of the time, is that it gives me an opportunity to see the kind of tone that the family sets, the, the way they speak. And then I can, I can work off that tone instead of speaking first and speaking in a tone that's different from what, what the family is uh, is going to speak at. That's one of the explanations for why a person should be silent when they enter a Shiva home and only speak once they are addressed, because it's really the way Chazal tell us, kind of take the temperature, see where they're at. Don't start by giving over your Shiva. Maybe they're holding by a very different emotional space than you're anticipating. So, like, take the cues. Read the room. Read the room. Read the room. Yeah. All right, Rabbi Kasus, you got this? I got this. Tetzaveh speaks in large part to the uh, the Big Day Kuhuna, specifically the pasuk that Rabbi uh, Rabbi Popko chose. Reminds me of a uh, a eulogy that the Briskorov gave on Rabbi Chaim Ozer Grudzinski. The Briskorov mentioned this pasuk, and he added the other pasuk of the tzitz. And the Briskorov mentioned how these two components are very very different. The Kohen Gadol also wears the tzitz. Essentially, he's the spiritual leader of the Jewish people. And the tzitz is right across from the brain, the mind, while the breastplate, the urim v'tumim, is right across the, the heart. They each represent those two very critical uh, components of a person's makeup. Often, he, he, he expressed these two things live in independent worlds. You have somebody who is uh, exceedingly emotional and very connected to the people, but not necessarily capable of accessing 
the intellectual component of their leadership. And then you have people the opposite extreme. They have very little emotional investment uh, in what's going on around them. But when it comes to the thinking, they're, they're brilliant thinkers. And a true gadol is someone who is capable of synthesizing these two worlds, of understanding that, yes, there are times where we have to give strict black and white orders if someone says, is this kosher or not kosher? Is this animal going to work? Or any, any, uh, any halachic issues that have to be discussed frequently can be accorded strictly to the brain. Here's the answer. This is what it is. Let's move on. But a true leader is someone who also accesses his heart and understands that sometimes there's room for nuance. It's our responsibility to synthesize both of these worlds and understand that this duality cannot live independent of each other. It must be fused in everything we do as leaders and always to ensure that whatever it is, any advice or any any pastoral work that we're doing, we're administering both of these components, both the halacha side and ensuring that we have an intellectual, a rigorous uh, intellectual process in sh- ensuring that we come to the right halacha, but at the same time it's infused with that nuance, that understanding of the people in which we're addressing so that we can incorporate those. And he concluded his eulogy saying that there are few people in the generation that had such an incredible balance between both of these worlds that they were capable of leading with absolute clarity when it came to halacha, but at the same time fully uh, embodying what it really means to have that choshen across from your breastplate, across from your emotions, from your heart, and really being sensitive to uh, everybody's needs. That's so beautiful. And and in fact, I'm getting a lot of nachas from that, uh, that Tvar Torah because, you know, Rabbi Goldberg and I for many years have been trying to uh, convert Rabbi Kasus over to the YU world, uh, the Torah of YU, uh, or of Soloveitchik, and and to see you know the fruits of our labor. <laughs> it's a great blessing to see right in front of you uh, the fruits of all your labors. Just so you know, no one ever asked me if I learned in YU. They asked me when I learned in YU. <laughs> I have never gotten like, oh, so how was Lakewood as a Smicha student? It was always like, wait, were you in Smicha with my cousin? And why? So just, just I'm already log converted, I think. And it's probably worth noting that organically we began our discussion here talking about approaches to eulogizing and the subtleties of speaking first and the uh, versus speaking last. Mm. And you have in your Dvar Torah was a eulogy. I don't know. There's there's something there, kind of stars aligning. I'll let you figure the rest of that one out. I hear you, though. My thought this week is a little bit less of a, of a vort with a message. It's just an observation. It's really a remarkable thing about the Big Day Kahuna that there's so much about the Big Day Kahuna that really is mysterious. The, there's so much ink spilt in the Torah about the Big Day Kahuna, um, and yet we know very little. There's a lot is still up for like open discussion and debate. Rav Kasher in the Torah Shlema says, he, he notes this, he says the Torah speaks a great deal about the Big Day Kahuna, and yet he says we find nothing about many of the items in the Torah Shabalpa in the Gemara, and the Rishonim have a debate about the shape that these things take. So for example, Rashi about the aphod says, I don't know what this is. He says, but Libi Omerli that this is how the aphod looked. It's incredible. And the Rashbam disagrees. Rashbam has a different mahalach for what the ephod look like. The Urim Vitumim in this Pasuk that, that uh, you selected, Rabbi, what is the Urim Vitumim? If I ask you to draw the Urim Vitumim, you will draw the Choshen. You will draw the, the breastplate. But that's not the Urim Vitumim. The Urim Vitumim went into the breastplate 
And so Rashi says that it was uh, uh, maybe the Shemos of Hashem, a special uh, written item that like gave the spiritual power to the Urim, to, to the Choshen to like answer questions. The Ramban says something similar. Rambam says something very different. The their their their, their rationalist approach to how the Urim what the Urim Vitumim was just wide ranging. Like Ibn Ezra seems to say, and this is really far out. But Ibn Ezra seems to say that the Urim Vitumim was an astrolabe, which is like a ancient or medieval tool for like calculating the rotation of the mazalos of the stars. The, it's it's just it's a, incredible that you could have such a huge diversity of opinions about something that seems to us so posh. It's just the Torah talks about the Urim Vitumim. How could we not know exactly what the Urim Vitumim is? And to me, that's just in and of itself. It's an amazing thing that there are things in the Torah that are beyond us that are hidden in plain sight, that are just, they're, they're, there's a mystery to the Torah that sometimes we, like, I guess you, you you relate to these things. I think about the Big Dekuna through, like, children's books and images that I've seen and things that just feel so accessible. And yet, when you think about it and you push a little bit, you realize that these things are still mysterious even even now. And that, I don't know, there's something remarkable about, about the Torah being, still having those places of mystery and wonder and, like, we, we, we don't know. Rosh, Libi Omerli, this is how the eighth would look. How is that possible? We don't know how the eighth would look. It's, it's, it's amazing. It seems to me, though, that there there is a lesson here. And that is, if a person recognizes this beautiful idea that you're conveying, uh, the mystery and the, and the wonder in, in the things that are beyond our comprehension, that, that recognition promotes humility, that there are things that we, we cannot know. One of the most important endeavors in life is, is Torah study, which is this constant pursuit of acquiring knowledge, understanding, understanding things better. But we should also remind ourselves that there are, there are things that we may not be able to understand. And that reinforces the trait of humility that we're also supposed to cultivate. In fact, there's, a, there's an idea from Rav Shimshon Fahl Hirsch, I think, this, which reflects this beautifully. And it's specifically within regards to the, the kalim in the in the Mishkan, because later on, as the B'nai Israel are getting ready to depart from Har Sinai, uh, they're given all the instructions of how to travel with the Mishkan, and the the Kohanim are assigned to disassemble uh, and travel with uh, the various parts of the Mishkan. And when it comes to the primary kalim, the Aron, the Menorah, the Shulchan, and so forth. The Pusik says, liros kivala that people should not be in the presence of the Kohanim as they are wrapping up these primary Kalim. And Rav Hirsch explains the reason is because if somebody watches these Kalim being prepared for travel, they're going to become so absorbed with how they look, these Kalim, which when the Mishkan is set up, you can't see them. They're, they're hidden. They're in the, the innermost chambers. But when, they're, when the Mishkan's being disassembled and you, you have a chance to see them, a person becomes so absorbed in the vision of them that they'll focus strictly on their material qualities, the, the physical makeup of these kalim. And Refer says that that's, that would be a total misunderstanding of these kalim. These kalim are not for 
They're not meant for their physical, material appearance or function. No, each one of these kalim is meant to convey lessons. It's meant to teach us ideas about the Rebona Shlolem, about Hashem, and about the world. The Mishkan is a place where we encounter Hashem. It's not, it's not a museum. It's not a place to, you know, to see the sights. Just the opposite. It's a place to, to think the ideas. And these kalim are primarily for their ideas. Uh, and so that's why... When you talk about like the mystery and the wonder of that which we don't know, Rafersh is saying that there should be a certain mystery and wonder, specifically when it comes to the Kalim, so that we make sure that we're focusing on their lessons. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful connection. So I, I don't know if I uh, I agree with the fact that you pulled a lesson out of that, but there was something to me that was very intriguing about the fact that Rabbi Goldberg embarked on a Dvar Torah specifically to stimulate the mind. I thought that was a very interesting approach. I don't necessarily come to teach you anything in the way of how we conduct our lives but here's a thought here's something that we should just process but as the consummate professional that you are rabbi you always just wrap it with a bow i also wanted to mention that this is a a good example of how the ramban treats the ibn ezra with open rebuke and concealed love Mm, yes as he says in his uh, introduction to his commentary um, that he's very, very critical of the Ibn Ezra here. And he uses some pretty strong language, like lest he view himself as being wise in his own eyes. Exactly. Like it's like, it's like really sharp. It's exactly. Harif. Exactly. Didn't mince words. But if you look at the Ramban overall, um, he very much favors uh, the approach that the Ibn Ezra takes methodologically. Anyway, so what I wanted to speak about actually ties in uh, to what Rabbi Goldberg mentioned. Uh, about the Urim Vitumim and how uh, Urim Vitumim doesn't refer to the Choshen or the stones on the Choshen, but rather the name of Hashem, which was inserted on a cloth in between the Choshen and the Aphod, right? The Choshen sat on the Aphod, on the chest of the, uh, the Kohen Gadol. And so between these two things, the Choshen and the Aphod, you had the name of Hashem slipped in the middle, and that's what gave it the miraculous capability of communicating Hashem's will to Bnei Israel. Now, Rashi, echoing Chazal, of course, uh, later on in the Chumash in Sefer Bamidbar, explains that when the camp is being set up to travel through the desert, and each tribe is identified by a flag, Rashi points out that the color of the flag matched the color of the stone on the Choshen. What that means then is that the identifying marker of each tribe was on the Choshen and represented the channels by which Hashem communicated with B'nai Israel. Whenever B'nai Israel had a, had a question, needed guidance, the way that they divided up the, the land when they first settled the land in the time of Yoshua, all of that was communicated by the Urim Vitumim, the name of Hashem, that brought about this miraculous uh, divine message that was communicated through the stones on the Choshen, the stones which represent the, the 12 tribes, both by, by their color as well as the, the names of the tribes being written on them. And as I thought about this, what I realized is that the message of Hashem is channeled through the Shvatim, through the tribes, through their stones, through the letters and their names, that that's how Hashem communicated with with B'nai Yisrael, which represents a beautiful idea for what it means to be 
a, a Jewish person who represents the Torah. The Torah is Hashem's message to us and to all of humanity, and, and we are that channel, just like the stones on the Choshen, that channel, the Urim Vitumim, we are the conduit to bring the Torah to this world, to bring its values and its lessons uh, to the world. And it's a very inspiring and motivating uh, concept. But in thinking about what's going on in Israel today and with Jewish people around the world, with the, the war being fought and the rise in anti-Semitism, it's also a source of, of, of great pain for me that here our primary role is to convey the message of Hashem, convey the, the, the lessons and the values of the Torah, and they're under attack right now. They're, they're not being heard. And not, not only are they not being heard, but they're being misunderstood and, and corrupted and rejected. Here we are trying to uh, fight for our, our very safety, our very lives, uh, in ways that uphold the most important values. And we're fighting an enemy that is manipulating those values. And so many people around the world are taken by that manipulation and have reacted in deeply anti-Semitic ways. And it's such a chil Hashem because we represent the Torah and we represent the message of the Torah. And this is literally what it means to be an or la goyim, a light unto the nations. Uh, not just that we should have a message to carry them, but no, the, the light that shone through, that refracted through the stones of the Choshen uh, by means of the Urim Vitumim, that's the light, that's the Torah that we are supposed to be teaching the world. And yet, right now, it's really, it's really falling on, on, on deaf ears. It's very beautiful. beautiful. It's very beautiful. The idea that each of us are like the, you know, uh, some sort of prism through which the Torah and Hashem's Kedusha shines through and projects its slightly different image into the world, but it all comes from that. It's such a, a, a magical, beautiful image. I've used that, I, that concept before when I was speaking with people about, you know, you have people who know Kola Torah Kulo, like, uh, you know, Rav Moshe and Rosh Zalman, Chacham right? Zichronam Levrach. But they disagreed about things. Mm. Right? How, how could you have two people who know everything and are righteous, tzaddikim, but just have a machlokas about how, uh, how... It's because each of them is their own gem, and the way the Torah refracts through them comes out different. Mm. Even as what's coming through them is so pure, and they are so pure, but it, because you're a different gem, it comes, it, you have machlokas, you have debate because you're a different person, and every person has their own... You know, creates a, you know, the Torah refracting through them creates a different image. I think it reflects so beautifully on what you were saying, and I connected also to the fact that Moshe was anav mikol adam, that he was he was so humble. Why is that so critical? It's because when you are humble, when you are when you diminish in a certain way, you're you're mitzamsim yourself. So when the Torah refracted refracted through Moshe Rabbeinu, it was almost like he was a it was glass. He was a clear vessel. There wasn't any. He was so so mitzamsim himself that what came through him was the pure light. He was he was the unadulterated Torah. unadulterated Torah, whereas everybody else, it's not a it's not a a, a, a pagam in a person that they're person that they're that they're different that they're unique, but that was the godless of Moshe was that he was anav mikol adam. He was like glass. So the Torah just shined through him purely, but everybody else adds their little bit of sapphire, a little bit of emerald. So I, I just think that's which a even in a certain image. way ties back uh, to what Rabbi Popko said last week about contributing you know we don't realize how important mm. 
each and every one of us are to the broader community and specifically Rabbi Goldberg the way you're framing it now is, is, is in our ability to give over Torah to everybody and with our unique stamp I mean we're all three rabbis on staff but we all have very different styles and different approaches which is what people care to hear I guess in these podcasts but I think on a much broader level, every single person has a unique contribution to make to the Jewish people that no one else could replace them. That There's no two situations where light, light refracts in the same way through mm. something. Every angle that the, the light is shining through creates a totally different design, uh, which is really what Hashem wanted from all of us, to make that unique contribution to society. Beautiful. And what a beautiful way to end the podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed. If you're interested in sponsoring a future episode, please reach out to one of us. And of course, please send us your feedback. Shabbat Shalom and Good Shabbos from the One Pusik Podcast. Shabbat